0: So we come to chapter 9, which is called The Unconditioned and Non-Locality. With some comprehension of unsupported consciousness, was the subject of the last chapter, as well as the quality of atamayatā, which was (coughs) before that, that means um, not made of that, and uh, is referring to the, the letting go of the whole object subject duality. <clears throat> we begin to say goodbye to the world of geography. Since, just as there was no where for the sunlight to land in the Buddha's compelling simile of the sunlight coming through the window of the house, just as there was no where for the sunlight to land in the Buddha's compelling simile, the consciousness of nibbana, although real, is best described as being unlocated. So, just for the use of English, location is a, a place from the, the Latin word locus, uh, and unlocated means that the, the, uh, the quality of place does not apply. It's interesting to reflect that only what we call physical existence is at all dependent upon three dimensional space. All the factors of the mental realm, the Namakandas, are unlocated. That is to say, the concepts of place and space do not, in any true sense, apply there. Our thoughts and perceptions are so geared (coughs) to operate in terms of three-dimensional space as the basic reality, and that view of things seems so obvious to common sense that it's hard for us to conceive of any other possibility. It's only through meditative insight that we can develop the uncommon sense required to see things differently A couple of everyday examples might serve to lead us into the subject so if you consider uh, we, we talk about um, yeah, my mind and we touch our head or our chest or we um, we say uh, you know this person or that person but uh, mind ha- has no form essentially uh, the world of form, shape, color, size, um, texture, smell, and so forth, this all belongs to the um, the derivations of the perceptual world, of um, what we call material form, three-dimensional space, time. These are all aspects of the material world. The mind is not material. It's non-material. So the, <clears throat> the rules that govern the, the laws of matter... Form and space and time, uh, <coughs> to a, an extent, don't apply to the world of mind. So uh, we uh, we uh, we use words like here and there, um, and talk about you know here we are in the sala, this is Amravati, uh, we're in Hertfordshire, um, and uh, and so forth. But these are uh, conventions of, of what we call space, which seems absolutely ordinary and automatic to us. But if you think about it, space only applies to the world of, of matter. And mind, which uh, is not completely non-material, uh, has, uh, has no genuine fundamental relationship to three-dimensional space. Mm. <laughs> so uh, it takes a little bit of reflection, but uh, if, you, if you think about it, you know, even something like light which doesn't have any mass still has a a, a presence just you know the lights come the the photons come out of the, the light bulbs or even uh <coughs> mat even uh, matter like neutrinos which um don't have any mass and not and in like unlike light they pass straight through our bodies you have something like 60 billion Neutrinos passing through every square centimetre of your skin every second, I believe. Just as a little fact that you might be interested in. Sixty billion per square centimetre <laughs> per second. That's a lot. <laughs> passing right through you without even slowing down. Don't even ask permission. So, but even neutrinos have uh, a relationship to space and form. Whereas mind does not. So, what this chapter is trying to explore, amongst other things, is a, a way, a ways and means of letting go of that fixation on locality uh, and lo, you know, locatedness. Because it's, it's interesting, uh, and I, I mentioned this many times in, in Dhamma talks over the years, how <clears throat> when I, I was living at a, a Bayagiri um, monastery in, in the States, and one, a very uh, very quiet winter retreat. Uh, the, my, the practice was going very smoothly, and my mind was getting very, very, very quiet. It was a very uh, insightful time. And so three or four weeks into the retreat, just, there was a very small community, just living in our little huts in the forest in the rainy season in California. And so the mind was very quiet, very, very little going on, hardly any visitors coming. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and there was a lot of insight into Anicca Dukkha Anatta, and uh, uh and so that was very very clear but then after a time i kept feeling like well there's yeah there's the everything is very very obviously and clearly anicca dukkha anatta an unsatisfactory uh, transient not self um but there's this there's this some kind of stickiness here there's some kind of um limitation or there's there's some kind of grasping going on but but what's it to because each dukkha anatta—it all seems to be very, very uh, obvious and and uh, clear. And so this was really puzzling because it was all almost, like almost like a tangible sense. Like, like what's what's being grasped at? Because it's not—it's you know, not the the body. It's not the mind. It's not the personality. It's like, so something's being grasped at. And then after and so it was it was fascinating, intriguing. Like something. What is it? What is it? What is it? And after three or four days of, of just looking at that over and over, I suddenly realized, oh, all this anicca, dukkha, anatha is happening here. There's this place that it's, uh, it's sort of being conceived as, as happening. So even when there's no apparent sense of I, there's a, there's a here-ness where, uh, where <laughs> the, uh, the, that experience seems to be located. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. It never crossed my mind before that to even consider. Um, I mean, I heard teachings like uh, from Ajahn Chah, which we'll come to later in the chapter, where he said, you know, if you can't go forwards, you can't go backwards. You can't stand still. Where do you go? Um, so I'd heard that those kind of teachings before, and I thought, oh yeah, really profound, really you know, interesting. And, but it had never really hit me in such a, a, di- a direct way. So I spent the next uh, while, next few uh, few weeks, looking at here and And when you, you, you develop this, I've, well, there's different ways of approaching it, but for myself, when I want to explore a particular theme in the practice, I try to keep it really, really simple. So what I would do, I would just bring up a single word, like here, because that the word, uh, uh, in a way, uh, Focuses the attention on a particular quality or presumption or attachment and so (coughs) That when just by bringing up the word here The wisdom faculty is aroused to then consider really (laughs) Where is that? (laughs) Where is here and then you know with any kind of reflection or exploration like this you find that you have to change the wording or change the angle of approach because if you just keep repeating the same word it becomes it loses its strength it loses its vitality so i would use little reflections like where is here <laughs> or <clears throat> what is what is awareness yeah what what does what does where apply to and then just by bringing the attention to that there's this seeing oh the mind keeps creating the the world of experience in terms of here there inside outside front back up, up and down and and creating mind in terms of, of three-dimensional space and time and so what this this chapter is is doing is looking particularly at that subtle identification with with uh, place and the the way that the attachment to experience uh, unconsciously takes on the um, identification with time and place and uh, the material conditioned realm so that's Making sense? This is for you, it's not just for me to you know, talk to the spaces between the atoms.
1: So, yes? So do we change the expression here and now to there is no here? Uh,
0: well, I get. To, I think I've, I get to that. Rather okay, than be sorry. here now, I think there's a realized, unlocate, unlocated... Uh, I didn't mean to jump ahead. No, no. <coughs> Well, well done, well done. Yeah, so it's not being here now; it's a realised, unlocated, insubstantial present, timelessness. <laughs> timelessness, Yeah. So, so, would you just explain again what happened when you realised that around the, the identification to a place, did place release you? you well, it, it, it released itself. <laughs> well, there was a, there was that sense of. Of traction, or stickiness, there's a, like a subtle sense of some something being grasped and identified with some kind of limitation. So then, when that was looked at, then that sense of limitation, or or friction, or traction, kind of fell away. It came back again, of course, so <laughs> as these things do. But it was it was very um, potent, so it, it, I, I reflected a, a lot because it was a, like a whole sort of new, it was like discovering a whole new room in your house that you didn't realize was, was there. It was like, oh look at this! My goodness, <laughs> we have a we have an annex here. <laughs> so, <clears throat> firstly, the word cyberspace is used more and more frequently these days. <clears throat> One talks of quote unquote quote, unquote, visiting such and such a website and, quote, my email address. But where are these? A Bayagiri monastery has a website, but it does not exist anywhere. It has no geographical location. Now I'm sure there's some pedants thinking, ah, but you've got a server. (laughs) It is hosted in a particular place, but uh, where is the cloud? Where is the cloud? Well, there's a big server farm in Iowa. <laughs> that, uh, so, well, uh, there's there's certain bits of machinery, but the the uh, uh, the information is not there. <laughs> it's like the the people don't live inside the TV. The access to the people, the images of the people, comes through the TV. Just like the information comes through the the server farms and whatnot. But it is not there. <laughs> that's a as I understand things that's a, a, a touch point, an access point. but the pursuing this this uh, analogy of unlocatedness that um, awareness thereness does not apply. The words visit, home page, address, and such like. Are the easy easy jargon of Siberia, spelled C Y B E R I A? Ha <laughs> ha ha! It was funny when I wrote it, but it's a bit, a bit stale now. This is this feels very dated. Actually, this was published in <laughs> my goodness. Some of you aren't even born. Two thousand and nine. Well, maybe most of you were.
1: <laughs>
0: it's already uh, eight years ago. So, home page, address, visit, such like are the easy jargon of Siberia, and we can be very comfortable using such terms. But the fact is that, just like a thought, and indeed the mind itself, although they exist, they cannot be said to truly be anywhere. Three-dimensional space does not apply in their context. A second example comes from a purportedly true incident. An American tourist in Oxford, England, approached a tweed-jacketed and bespectacled professorial type and said, Excuse me, I wonder if you could tell me, where exactly is the university? Madam, the professorial type responded, The university is not in reality anywhere. The university possesses only metaphysical rather than actual existence. What he meant, of course, or perhaps not of course, but what he did mean was that Oxford University, the university, being comprised of separate independent colleges and not having a campus is just a concept agreed upon by a number of humans to have some validity. It, it, the university, might have financial dealings, it might set exams and issue degrees, but physically, it does not exist. There are the different colleges, yes, that one may attend or visit, but the university, no. Like a website or a virtual garden in a computer program, or indeed, like a mythical country such as Erewhon, all can be said to exist, but awareness does not apply. They are unlocated. Can you follow that? So that the, most American universities are on campuses. So you'd say, OK, where's UC Berkeley? Oh, the campus is here. It's at the end of University Avenue. Uh, the, the campus for Rutgers University or Yale University. But uh, um, like London University, had, uh, when I was there, it had 44 different colleges dotted all around the, the, um, the larger metropolitan area of London. So you can go to London and say, well, where's the university? In exactly the same way. It's like, well, it isn't anywhere. You've got the different colleges you can go to and the university administrative buildings, but it it does not exist anywhere. But the idea, you know, London University issues degrees. I got one. But you can't say that it exists any place. And it was actually an Oxford don who told me that story, so it's not... It was someone who was like a university lecturer at one of the Oxford colleges who told me that story. I don't think he actually saw it happen, but uh, it was part of the local mythology. Of course, in Oxford, uh, you would expect that the average person on the street would understand what the difference between metaphysical and actual existence might be. So in that word, metaphysical means that beyond the physical, so something that is not tangible in the physical world. As we cross the border into the realm of the unconditioned, if such a metaphor is valid, there needs to be a relinquishing of such habitual concepts as self and time and place. The apprehension of ultimate truth, paramatasacha, necessarily involves a radical letting go of all these familiar structures. So also this is not just uh, you don't just find this in the realm of spiritual teachings and in terms of mind. But it's also uh, helpful and interesting to understand that in terms of physical reality, which we think of as being so sort of solid and tangible, that 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 really does have uh, uh, fixed locations. If you go down to a small enough scale, uh, what's called the Planck scale after Max Planck, not Planck with a -A P-L-A-N-K, but P-L-A-N-C-K, Max Planck, if you go down, if you shrink the down, 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 down to... And I look this up just to check. So, if, to uh, the Planck length, which is the smallest measurable, meaningfully measurable distance, is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 35 meters. So that's 10 to the minus 20, point zero zero 0.0020 zeros, one, of the size of a proton. Uh, that's the uh, the middle bit of a hydrogen atom, so it's very very short. But below that length, you can't any you can't meaningfully talk about length. That uh, size doesn't really apply. Time before and after doesn't really apply. That uh, three-dimensional space and time doesn't apply at that scale. And you might think, well, that's kind of far out. I mean, it's just other things. But that that's within this very solid chair. <laughs> That the the matter that makes up these bodies, this uh, this building, this wonderful new carpet, this chair, uh, that's the nature of of matter, of all matter. If you go down to a small enough scale, uh, then that's the case for all material objects. That that uh, below a certain level, here and there, before and after, doesn't really apply. That makes sense. So. Uh, <clears throat> It's, it's, it's supposed to be, it is kind of mind-boggling, and, uh, and, but it's supposed to be. And very interestingly, the, uh, the um, uh, brilliant physicist Richard Feynman once said, uh, anybody who tells you that they understand quantum mechanics, if they, if they tell you they understand it, they're lying. And he was an expert in quantum mechanics. So even he said, no one, no one really understands this, because it does boggle the mind. Because all of our reference points are before and after. You know, time goes in one direction. You talk to a quantum physicist and they go, well, not exactly. You can't really say that. And uh, so on and so forth. So this uh, is, applies in the, in the mental realm, but also applies in the physical realm at levels that are beyond our usual uh, um, say scale of, of perception. But why should the plank length 10 to the minus 1.6 times 10 to the minus 35 of a meter why should that be any less real than the length of this building or the height of our body or the length of our fingers or whatever it's just you, know, you, you can say well that's really 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 short well, yeah but measured against what <laughs> again this is designed to be a bit mind-blowing um, but it's helping us to to get to that point where we, we recognize, oh yeah, right. And as Ajahn Chah would say, you know, is this stick is it long or short? What do you measure it against? If you measure a, if you measure, let's say, this book against the, the width of a human hair, the book's really big. If you measure the book against the size of the Milky Way, it's really small. But is it big or is it small? Big and small are are all relative mind made. Here, as a present-day example, and to illustrate the centrality of such relinquishment of the, the the mental creation of place, here is the insight which arose for Ajahn Mahabur in the period of intense practice immediately following Ajahn Man's final passing away. It was this thought, which he describes as having arisen on its own, and more that it was heard, rather than thought, which led to Ajahn Mahabhura's full enlightenment shortly thereafter. And this is from, uh, quoted from a, a Dhamma talk of his called Straight from the Heart. There's also a book of his teachings with the same title. And the short statement is, and "This, as he was doing walking meditation, this sort of appeared so, uh, on its own. And he said it wasn't really based on anything, that uh, it just arose. Um, and by itself, if there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. I'll read it again. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. So similar to that that insight I was describing um, those years ago to Abhayagiri in the early days there. That uh, there was a sense of oh that that knower, that that which is knowing in each dukkha it's here. There's a, there's a centre to it. There's a a uh, a place where it's happening, and uh, and he points that out. Oh, this is the essence of a level of like uh, birth at some level of being that the mind is being born into time and place and, and identity. So that uh, uh, this was a very very um, uh, helpful teaching. So when I I came across this around about the, the same time. It sort of jumped off the page and said, oh yes, that's exactly what, what uh, uh, has been uh, intriguing and expresses it very briefly and, uh, and very hopefully. So if there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. So it's talking about that foundation of birth and, uh, and attachment uh, identification. It's coming from that here-ness. Secondly, we can take up the Buddha's own words on the nature of Nibbāna, or Asankata Dhamma, the Unconditioned Reality. And this is the passage I, I uh, read out yesterday. So this is from the Udāna. Um, the, the eighth chapter of the Udāna is called Partali Village. And it's a series of talks the Buddha gave in this the, near this village where he was staying with a, a number of uh, Sangha members. So the title of the chapter is just Partali village, and this is the first sutta from that, that section. There is that sphere, that uh, ayatana is the word is translated as sphere, where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind, no sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There, there is neither this world, nor the other world, neither moon nor sun, This sphere I call neither a coming, nor a going, nor a staying still. Neither a dying, nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. So he's referring to the aspects of the material world, no earth, no water, no fire, no wind, so the four elements that make up the the fabric of the material world. And then these refined, uh, the arupa, loka, so that's the the, the the realm of form, the karma loka and rupa loka. And then the arupa, the formless realms of infinity of space, infinite consciousness, no-thingness. And then the fourth of the arupa uh, jhanas, uh, the, these arupa lokas, neither perception nor non-perception. And as he says, there's neither this world nor the other world, so there's not different realms of existence. Neither moon nor sun call it neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution and no support. Just this is the end of Dukkha. And and as we'll come to later on in the chapter, this is also a teaching that had a big influence on on cha. And as I was just quoting a moment ago, he would sometimes... uh, like many teachers he would have a particular theme that he would uh, follow or uh, refer to for a a year or two uh, and would come up over and over again and for a period of time when people came to visit or he'd bring it up in in talks and he would just put it to people as a as a conundrum as a puzzle he'd say if you can't go forwards and you can't go back you can't stand still where do you go and then people would of course try sideways (laughs) climb a tree so <laughs> no you can't go sideways you can't climb a tree you can't dig a hole you, know, you can't go forwards you can't go backwards you can't stand still you can't go up you can't go down or either side where do you go and then um, again it's trying to put the the mind into the into a place of of um, recognizing its uh, fixation on here there before after backwards forwards that me as an individual se- uh, person existing in time and place, I was there, I'm now here, I will go there, um, and that that's what we think we are. I am this person, I am this individual, um, and uh, I come and I go. Uh, and that uh, that kind of question, if you can't go forward, you can't go back, and you can't stand still, where do you go? It's like There's no answer to it, as long as the mind conceives this reality in terms of uh, me as this individual person existing in time. And it's only through letting go of time and place and individuality that then the, the puzzle can can be solved. If I am not this body, if, uh, if I am not in time, if the mind wakes up to its fundamental nature as uh, apparent here and now, timeless, calico. Uh, and uh, <coughs> beyond uh, beyond time and form and location, then the, the the puzzle solves itself. Then the next passage is uh, again from this Patali village section of the Udana. This is sutra number three uh, in uh, that uh, eighth chapter of the Udana, and this we chant regularly. Now, this is one of the Lompobomato's most uh, favorite uh, Sutta passages, there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned and formed. But, since there is this unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created conditioned and formed so that's the good news <laughs> and this is <coughs> this is a um, uh, the reason why we we uh, we chant we introduce this into our chanting was um, particularly because coursemate uh, was very fond of it and encouraged it to be to be recited and so then I asked the former sister Abbasra who did all of the um uh, musical forms, of what's called the cantillation for our chanting to to um, put this into a, a form that could be chanted both the English and the, the Pali uh, and so uh, this is a, a very very powerful reflection and also it echoes that uh, in a way it's the, the very essence of the um, the Buddha's teaching why the Buddha taught is because liberation is possible it's like yes <laughs> Full, uh, uh, full enlightenment, full liberation I- is possible, and uh, and he states it very, very emphatically here. You know, if there was not this unconditioned reality, liberation would be impossible. Because there is, it is possible. It's all you need to know. <laughs> and uh, so it also it echoes a particularly um, significant teaching when when uh, uh, Ajahn Chah was a, a young monk and he, he met the venerable Ajahn Man then uh, he was only with him for about three days and uh, um, apparently uh, it was on the third day when and every evening uh man would give teachings and and during that that third evening one of the points that that man made in his dhamma talk was that um that which is aware of the five khandas is intrinsically separate from them it's it's transcendent of them if it was not liberation would be impossible because it is liberation is possible, and it's like uh, Ajahn Chah said. It was like that. That was a a, a, a moment of a very significant understanding and awakening in him, and uh, you know, the light really came on. And something in him knew that's all you need to know. That's it. That, that's the whole deal. The North East Thai, the, uh, Laos, the Lao language version of that. Mm-hmm. <clears> then <throat> <clears> you <throat> And so he, he uh, uh, that was a very, very significant insight uh, that that which is aware, uh, in its essence, uh, that awakened awareness, is transcendent of the five khandas. And if it wasn't, then liberation would be impossible. <clears throat> because it is um, uh, outside the five khandas, then therefore liberation is possible. Uh, it should be noted, having said that, that uh, the Abhidhamma um tends to represent things that all kinds of, of cognition and awareness are within the five kundas so when namposemato um talked in this terms with various um, scholar uh, monastics then people have found faults and we you you can't say that because uh, aware, every kind of awareness is within the five kundas so you know that's this is wrong view venerable sir <laughs> okay. but um it's uh, think it's, it's important to say that this really is a sort of core insight that the forest meditation teachings revolve around, and it's thoroughly supported by the suttas. So it might not be supported by the Abhidhamma, and I'm not an expert by any remote sense in Abhidhamma, but uh, it might not agree with the Abhidhamma, but I would tend to go with the sutta teaching and the teachings of the living, liberated uh, elders who uh, sort of refer to this and... Um, and to uh, uh, to use that as the the guide. So, are there any devoted Abhidhamma scholars here? Then, with all due respect, I, you're totally entitled to your own point of view. <laughs> but uh, this is, is a really uh, a key, it's like a, a linchpin, a keystone of the of the forest uh, meditation teachings. To so just read a little bit more, then. It's significant when the Buddha makes such statements as these that he uses a different Pali verb, to be, than the usual one. The vast majority of uses of the verb employ the Pali hoti, um, the H-O-T-I, hoti, um, <coughs> which comes from you know, the regular verb to be, which I think is bhavati. Uh, uh, so the... This is the ordinary type of being. So when the, when you use hoti, it means um, today is Thursday. You know, that kind of is. So for example, an ordinary type of being implying existence in time and space. I am happy. She is a fine horse. The house is small. The days are long. So those the being is, is very, it's tied to do with, with time and objects and uh, moods and such like. In these passages just quoted, when the Buddha makes his rare but emphatic metaphysical statements, he uses the verb atti, A-T-T-H-I, atti, instead. It still means to be, but some Buddhist scholars, notably Peter Harvey, insist that there is a different order of being implied, that it points to a reality which transcends the customary bounds of time, space, duality and individuality. And, on that note, uh, so Peter Harvey, in his very fine little book, uh, which is called Selfless Mind, The Selfless Mind, um, Personality, Consciousness, and Nirvana in Early Buddhism, which is his (coughs) PhD thesis, but sort of dressed up for regular human consumption. (laughs) On page 241, if you're interested, he makes this point about, uh, about Ati. Ati, ati, then, can be applied to that which exists, quote-unquote, in a timeless sense. So that it's a it's a rare usage of the word, but when the Buddha makes this kind of statement, like, there is, and he's stating something about, uh, as this is a metaphysical statement, so that which is outside of our normal reference points. So you wouldn't use ate, ati to say, this is Thursday. You'd say, this is Thursday. You'd use hoti which is uh, the verb to be in terms of um, time and, and individuality and, and uh, the conditioned realm. But the Buddha uses this, ter- this word atti as a different kind of uh, existence. So it's existing, but uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a whole sort of different order of, of uh, reality. So, if you want to look that up, it, Peter, Peter Harvey is a very reputable scholar. He was, I think, he's retired now, but he was teaching at Sunderland University for a long time, and he's a um, good friend of the Sangha, a Dharma practitioner. So, it's not just a sort of a flaky theory, but uh, it has a lot to to back it up as well. So, but if you want to look it up in that uh, selfless mind, it's now on page two forty one. So, before uh, going uh, carrying on, any questions, thoughts? James.
2: I was just wondering, when you talk about non-location, are you just referring to this awareness that's outside the five canvas? Because some aspects of mind, <coughs> normal aspects of mind, seem to be located in the body, sensations
0: and... No, well, no, it's, it's every aspect of mind. Because you can you say, okay, I feel it in my knee. Your mind... Creates an image of the body. I I say my knee is down there. Downness is a mental impression. The body, the mind creates an image of the body. There's a, a one of the books that I I feel should be required reading, for all Buddhist meditators. Reach for your notebooks. Yes, is <laughs> uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. By Oliver Sacks. Which is fantastic. If you ever want to get a perspective on perception being dubious, then. Because it, 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 he's a, um, a neuroscientist and, and I think a psychiatrist as well. And uh, the book is, is all these different things that go wrong with perceptions. And one of the, 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 the people that he describes, one of his patients he describes, was. And it was a unique medical case that, at least when he wrote the book, there was only one known instance of this happening. And in this instance, what happened was a, a young woman, quite healthy, went in for a very um, uh, uh, kind of average operation. When she came out of the anesthetic, the, the regular operation she had was success. But what happened, there was some kind of weird reaction with the anesthesia, or some kind of mental effect. And she stopped being able to perceive her body. Her mind could not make an, a mental image of her body. So you might think, well, it's my body. You know, my knees are down here, my head's up here, my hands are out here. Of course. But it's not of course. The mind makes an image of the body and then sustains that. That's why when people lose their limbs, they can still feel the limb there because what we are experiencing is the mind's image of the body. It's creating that. So she lost that. So she had to, she she was still, all her nerves and muscles worked, but she had to lay Relearn how to work her body, like, like, like moving a puppet.
2: In that case, you can't really distinguish between mind and matter anyway, because everything we perceive, you could say, is just the mind. Indeed. So how can you then say, say that there's even material location?
0: Well, um, because we say Amravati's in Hertfordshire, it's that you're talking about the, 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 uh, on the mundane level of perception. So, but if you, if you look up close, then you see, well, what's Hertfordshire? You know, <clears throat> 1,500 years ago, this was the kingdom of Essex. We were part of the kingdom of Essex. Hertfordshire didn't exist. It's an invention. But we can say, yeah, we, we're in Hertfordshire. So you write that on the envelope. And so it's talking about our, our everyday conditioning, you think you're James Buckley. Really? <laughs> you know, what's a James Buckley? You know, but we use that because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not Caroline Leinster. You know, I look at you and I say, James. If I look at you and I say, Caroline, you think, Jean Amrose needs his glasses. <laughs> yeah. So it's talking about the starting point of our, of our everyday experience. Essentially... It, uh matter is only known through the agency of the mind so that there's the perception of feeling. but you say oh, this is matter it's like you, this sight, sound, feeling. the mind constructs an experience and says I feel the chair but that's all constructed. It's all just patterns of consciousness essentially. That's why the Buddha said like the passage I was quoting yesterday that the world, uh, the world as we experience it, loka. The eye is the world. The, the tongue is the world. The nose is the world. The, the ear is the world. We the world we The world that we know is the world as represented by our mind. That's the only world we can know. Even if you've got great machines that can measure everything very accurately, that it's the mind that interprets those those, those machines. So the only world that we can know is the world as our mind represents it so when you get those kind of pathologies like the woman who who lost her body sense or you you lose your hearing or with when people get dementia and so forth then that that creation of the world breaks down you start hearing voices you can't feel things you 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 put things down you forget where you left them you you um uh you take your your false teeth out and you put them in your teacup rather than in the glass of water. Thing. oh, where did I put my teeth in the tea? Mm. <laughs> the perceptions get scrambled because the, the mind's having to, at the moment that the teeth got put into the tea, it was like, take teeth out, put in liquid. Oh, wrong liquid. Yeah, that's, why these, that's why my teeth are in my teacup. So that the, the mind is constantly having to put the world together. But And we assume that's reality, but it's just our, the, our mind's version of reality. And then enlightenment is where this mind's version of reality gets closer and closer to the, uh, the fundamental reality itself, and is less distorted by biased perceptions and attachments and identifications. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I'm just not quite sure about the non-location that Because that's suggesting that you're always going to have a sense of the location, even if it's mind.
0: But if the mind is not attached to the body, the mind stops being identified with the body, you
2: then it, still knows feel, you still have those it, it knows
0: the impression, this is the impression of down or up or hot or cold or strong or weak, but it knows this is the impression. Like, the you know, the feeling of weight, rather than, oh, this is how much I weigh. It's like, no, you, there's a sense, oh, this is the pull of the earth on the body, this is the force of gravity, this is a perception. It's not, there's not, it's not anything permanent or solid or or uh, substantial to it. It's an impression, that's all. It, how could it be anything more than that? Even though gravity is there all the time, except for people up in the, Space station. <laughs> so you
2: still have the sense, but you just wouldn't
0: sort of them. exactly. Yeah, just like I was saying with with emotions, uh, or, or the, you know feeling hot and cold, or, or Ajahn Chah talking about the the uh, that uh, uh, in the earlier readings when I was talking about uh, the young Jack the young Jack Cornfield as a monk, Praat Sunyo, on this uh, <coughs> this. Um, ride in a pickup uh, through the through the hills to the Cambodian border. And he was sitting there thinking, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And uh, and he could see Ajahn Chah also had white knuckles. <laughs> and uh, But uh, he was sort of looking at him saying, is he scared? Yeah. And then at the end of Ajahn Chah just gave him a big grin and said scary ride, huh? <laughs> so there's there's that the mind that is, is attuned to feelings and perceptions and is in, in a way kind of hyper responsive to the material world, and with a minimum of biases. But it's also recognizing, well, this is just feeling. This is just this is just sound. This is just taste. This is just uh, just light. That's all. So it's
2: not pointing to an actual experience of non-locality. It's more like an inference of this sense of locality isn't real. So that's what I thought implied, like, an experience of non-locality, so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't you no longer feel that you are just here. You wouldn't,
0: it wouldn't seem that you're just here. Well, it, it's, it, it's known that that feeling of here-ness is just fa- another fabricated perception, like the feeling of I-ness. Like the, the, the personality still functions. Language and thought and personality still functions. But it's not taken as anything real or, or solid. Just that, that sense of, of here-ness is recognized. Oh, it's just. What, what's that got to do with anything real? I
1: think, um, I think what, what is in the air is this kind of unease um, about losing <laughs> Losing direction somehow. Yes. And,
2: and as, as
1: you, know, <laughs> but also as you say, you know, when you go to you go this way, you don't go that way. So there is a very clear sense of where's mm-hmm. what. So in, in conventional reality, we need to know how to operate. And as you say, this this example with this woman, it's an illness. You know? mm-hmm. and, and cyberspace. I mean, meanwhile you know, kids or adults as well. Uh, who sit uh, in front of cyberspace games, they get up and fall down the stairs because they don't move. Yeah, yeah. The body coordination doesn't work at any with what they see because they are completely out of their bodies. So that's a new new uh, trend. Mm-hmm. You know, how to re educate people who sit a lot on, on the computer uh, or an abstract space uh, into their body. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I can feel that myself. I mean, you probably know that as well, how easily, you know, when you get up, you want to make a photograph, you know, already there in your mind. And you knock against the... the I don't know, you know. You're not... So the, the practice is... Mm-hmm also to be aware of the body. Absolutely. So uh, not to forget that. I think Ajahn Suchito said something more recently, which really uh, quite funny. He says you can only get enlightened with the body. And I don't think he just meant you know, human realm uh, as because pain and uh, experience, processing. the same. The experience of pain to insight. Mm-hmm. I think he really also meant not to get too theoretical and really bring it back to the physical reality. Yes. And and the meditation teaching is then you know when you contemplate feeling where do I feel that in the body? So you bring it back to the body mm-hmm. again and again. But well, it's
0: interesting that the... Sorry, did you... finish? No, I just want to say that to, to you know, balance
1: things out a little bit, it's not that we aim to... Oh, it doesn't matter, you know, we are...
0: <laughs> there's no time and space. Well, the, I was going to say that the, it's interesting that the, the very first sutta in the, in the Sangita Nikaya, the Connected Discourse, is the chapter called the Asankata Sangutta, the Connected Discourse is about the Unconditioned. Sutta number one says, I will teach you the unconditioned and the way leading to the unconditioned. What is the, the, the unconditioned and the way leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed towards the body. That is the way leading to the unconditioned. That's sutta number one. So in that whole collection. So it starts there. And also that's very much um, a theme of the forest tradition is is the mindfulness of the body and, and using the, the body as a as a reference point. So it's, as with so many aspects of the teaching, it's, you're not just trying to grasping the vija, the, 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 the awareness side of it, and ignoring the the conduct or the, the physicality side of it. They need each other. And that, because, yeah, the, this letting go of, of, it's interesting, the word uh, to be disoriented means to lose your East. Orient is the East. And it's a, like a, a naval term. But you you measure, measure where you are in a, in a ship by by sort of tracking yourself to where, where the east is. So to be disoriented is to lose your east. You don't know where east is. So that if the Buddha was encouraging disorientation, like it'd be <laughs> be as spaced out as possible, you know. And it's it's not it's that would be a really foolish misunderstanding of it. But it's say so within the scope of uh, of right conduct and it's also interesting in the, the later reading in the chapter I don't think we'll get to it today but um, that reading from the Melinda Panha the questions of King Melinda when he's talking about Nibbana is, is not a place then what he refers to is, that, is there, uh, even though Nibbana is not a place and can't be found anywhere is that where does somebody stand in order to realize Nibbana and then what he says is one stands in Sila one stands in sila in morality that 's the, the the standing place and wherever wherever a person stands or establishes themselves in sila then they can realize Nirvana at that at that point so that um, that uh, that sort of material practical physical side of it is not rejected but it 's rather that the this quality of, of insight is putting it into a context and saying that the the material reality, and the, 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 the recognition that here and there, backwards and forwards, uh, and past and future and so forth, these are, these are constructs, they are, they're not the, the absolute reality. But I think in particular, um, just reflecting on the non-physical quality of mind, and even though we say, "There, you know, I feel my knee, my knee is down there, to recognize, well, that's just, that's just the fabrication. And even when you have don't have to wait till you're demented or you have a serious illness, but you can sometimes be disoriented in that way. And you can there's the the, the mind says oh, what what direction is that or, or where's that? I'm I feeling it, oh it's there, and it actually has to sort of put the thereness together, just like it has to sort of put the sense of I together. And so just reflecting on that and exploring using the meditation to explore that, it just loosens the habitual identification not so that you get lost on the magic roundabout in Hemel, but <laughs> but to to loosen that fixation that you know this is the the this is the real world so that's why i find those oliver Sacks, um books really helpful because it just keeps bringing it to you oh no this is this is put together this is this is not actually the whole story <laughs>
1: Is it, um, you know, Nama Rupa, in, in the dependent origination? Incha.
0: Vinyana Nama Rupa, Salayatana.
1: So, um, is that actually the, the, where it's linked?
0: Well, it's one of the places, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Because I, I was, well, it's so, uh, not easy to understand the, the meaning of Nama Rupa and the, all of the nets that's uh, a okay. or, or the sense of,
0: of the sense of location comes because of the 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 connection of of uh, rupa to, to nama but also if you if you reflect on those the arupa loka the 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 realm of the the formless say also, it, it tells you, it suggests interesting things about, well, if space only applies to physical bodies, physical form, where does my mind stop and where does yours begin? Oh my goodness! You know, if if awareness only applies to the body, then we, you, know, you can't say that minds, I mean, in a way overlap, doesn't quite because overlapping still is a, is uh, an image coming from space, but that uh, <coughs> how could it be that that uh, you know one mind is totally separate from another?
1: Doug has hardly had that thing where you look at the other person, you're them, you're them, while you're silent, while that's your... I'm not saying that. To take what you're saying, it's so yeah, I think I find it
0: it's helpful just to, to sort of play with these ideas and think, just to, to get to that point where the mind goes, oh. Where does my mind stop and somebody else's begin? Because, and you, because we assume, oh, my mind is locked in this little box, and yours is somewhere else. But if if that here and there doesn't really apply in the, in in the world of mind. How could there not be some absence of barriers? Where does the ba- where does the feeling of separation or barriers come from? Oh, and so the point of of these kind of reflections I find is just to get to that oh, <laughs> where the the familiar structures sort of fall away. Not to you know not trying to conjure up some kind of cosmic experience necessarily, but just that way of letting go of the habitual constructs and then. Uh,
1: because it helps in that sense of um, barriers between
0: you and me. If, like you said, that helps us the sense of oneness that we're not separated.
1: What you're saying. Yes, the the and uh, the sense of I think, empathy or...
0: yeah and relatedness between beings and the the realm of, of the material realm and our sense of, of connection with each other. Again, you you don't ignore the 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 material form. You know. The nuns and the women live the nuns and the women live over on that side, and the monks and the men live over on that side and and so that they have the all the protocols of of living skillfully together, but within that context then to to just reflect oh look at that if if mind if if space and here and there backwards and forwards up and down only applies in terms of form, how could minds be considered as somehow separate from each other how could they not be some kind of overlapping or, or connectedness how could they not be uh uh-huh. again you don't have to create some sort of brilliant theory out of it but just to you know loosen that uh, the uh, customary perception venerable Indopanya has been on the brink of a question yeah. for a long time admirable patience uh, venerable. yeah just in like in our society we.
3: Um, because we usually based a lot on a scientific perspective, so we presuppose that mind is a function of of the brain, mm-hmm. um, and you need a highly evolved brain to have kind of sophisticated consciousness, and and so it's kind of very it's very hard to get beyond that sort of sense that well this is my consciousness, so obviously this is occurring in in my brain, my, my body, and, and and here, and I was just wondering if. Like if the, if in depth time when the Buddha was teaching, if they were working with it, like if they had a different paradigm of what consciousness is, that it was more sort of something that's intrinsically part of part of real, like a part of the fabric of reality, or like I know they talked about sort of like rocks having one faculty, consciousness and like I'm sure plant. rocks, plants. Oh, plants, pla- pla- sorry, plants. Me, pla- plants yeah, sorry, or and plus soil. Yeah, but um, yeah, just if they had a different idea of. Of the, nat- of the nature of consciousness,
0: or like in the society? Uh, I can't speak as an expert about it, but the brain, um, in the list of the 32 parts, the brain comes after urine. You know, it's like way down the list. Uh, and even in later years, the, in the Visuddhi manga, the, the definition of the function of the brain is the producer of snot. <laughs> So the brain was not particularly highly regarded as anything significant in in Buddhist medicine or mythology or whatever.
1: So it's it's a it's a modern
0: day idea that the mind is an emergent property of brain chemistry. Um, I don't know whether it really existed. Does Do you know about history of science? Was it anybody before like the Enlightenment and the Eighteenth century.
1: I think, from um, what, what I've read, they thought that consciousness was in the heart. That there was a cavity in the heart that had their blood in it, that was the source of consciousness. But also, I um, mean, if you think about ideas of Chitta, it appears wherever the mind is manifest. So I think there's much more of the idea that consciousness arises wherever perception is happening.
0: And also, there's so much more, both not just within the Buddhist teachings, but the Vedanta of formless realms or divine beings or these sort of huge consciousnesses, you know, massive, um, multifaceted consciousnesses are very, very real in the, in the thinking, so that uh, the idea that humanity is the sort of crown of creation and that this most sort of superior kind of being is, is, is this mind and this, that, that's completely back to front that most of the mythologies are that this is a degraded form. That, you know, and there are other much more exalted and comprehensive and and sort of uh, exalted forms of consciousness. And so this is a pretty grubby and and sort of a a, a very limited range of experience. So I think it's pretty much since the kind of small-e Enlightenment, since about the 18th century, that you, you had more of this sort of materialistic view of mind as a as an emergent property of the of the brain and, uh, and that kind of um, mechanistic scientific approach. Um. That's very recent because we didn't know about the nervous system at
1: all. Yeah. Yeah. And the look on discovery of course the circulation systems 16th century I think. Harvey.
0: Yeah. Was. So, 17th century. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's, it's not that long, you know, the whole idea that, that, that uh, the, the body is producing these things, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, uh, yeah. in, in, uh, think there's thinking, I think really of thing is just this, this image, that it, it's even now, the school, that you don't speak of body, speak, so not Körper. The, the Körper is like the English body, just the physical, but there's a word in, from, from the uh, mystic times uh, in Germany which is called life. And the life is apparently connected to the cosmos and to God, so, so the spiritual uh, development is, is with this part of the body.
0: Body. Yeah, and I think it both within Christian forms and also within Buddhist forms, like in the northern Buddhist schools you had the nirmanakaya, the physical body, sambhogakaya is like the energy body, and then dhammakaya is the sort of body of reality. And the nirmanakaya, the, the physical form, is just like the, the most sort of mundane and, and uh, tangible of, of those. So. It's a, it's a very, uh, I think it's a very modern idea. I mean, it's, it's quite popular. The, 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 what we think of as life and reality is just a sort of uh, electrical reflex of the brain chemistry. But uh, I, I, you know, I'd i like to have a camera on people like Richard Dawkins mm-hmm. at the end of their life, you know, once they, <laughs> once they pass through the curtains, you know, like, like have a little little cctv camera like oh <laughs> gosh <laughs> i wonder if this is an artifact yeah. anyway uh, let's uh, let's leave it there for um for today so thank you all for your good questions and comments and uh, contributions but uh, yeah we'll uh, we'll leave it there for the moment